0: Good. Can you say that with me? Say, stretch thin. So we've been having some honest conversations about stress, about anxiety, about mental health, and uh, I'm excited today to share with you in part four. We have one more week next week, uh, which is on uh, Reformation Day, also known as Halloween. Uh, But if you are a believer, you know that old Martin Luther tacked those 95 theses in the church in Wittenberg, Germany, in October 31st in the 1500s, and so we get overshadowed so quickly, don't we, by Halloween, but it is uh, Reformation Day next Sunday, so it would be a great opportunity for us to finish out this series. If you have a Bible, I want you to open them with me to Mark chapter 15 will be today's teaching text, and we're going to read that teaching text aloud together, and I uh, just want to say, again, um, go Bravos, Los Bravos, all right? Anybody excited about the Braves? We finally we finally killed the narrative. Okay, y'all stayed up way too late watching the Braves game because your excitement level is really, really low. All right. So uh, yeah, we killed the narrative. So I'm gonna go ahead and say it. Mark my words. I'm not a prophet, but I'm gonna go ahead and say it. You ready? Braves and six. Braves and six. Astros don't know what's about to hit them. Braves and six, all right. So just throwing that out there real quick. All right. It'll go on the podcast. You can go back in a couple weeks and I'll say, remember, go back and listen to the message. But no, maybe that's just hopeful expectation. but uh, I just want to say, uh, I'm really, really excited, thrilled for um, our DP. students, and uh, one of our DP student coordinators um, who's helping to lead all the, the young men and ministry that we've appointed in all this transition is Mr. Thomas Gamble, and he is actually going to come and read today's teaching text. Would you put your hands together for Thomas as he comes. All right, we're reading Mark 15, 33 through 39. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Amen. You know, church, if you feed babies, you take care of them in terms of their nutrition, their milk, their food when that time comes, but you deprive them of Meaningful human connection, or what we call psychologically an attachment bond, they will develop lower body weight, those children will develop more illness, and they will develop what we have now to- uh, coined or termed as a syndrome called failure to thrive. Failure to thrive. As human beings, we are born for human connection. As human beings, we are wired by God in the image of God to connect to other humans and to connect to other humans in a deep way. We are born this way. I remember as a new believer, actually not a new believer, but one of the first churches I should say that I pastored, that the church would begin to send mission teams to orphanages to Moldova, particularly all of those in Eastern Europe, okay, and these Uh, Eastern European countries, and they would send mission trips and mission teams to Moldova, and the mission trip was to go into orphanages and hold babies. That was the mission trip. You held babies for a week. You held babies for 10 days. You held babies for two weeks. Because these babies had lots of food, they had care in that sense, but they didn't have love. And if a baby does not get a deep sense of connection, if a human being from the outset does not get deeply connected to another human, not only would they physically fail to thrive, but if you actually did a a CT scan of infants at one year old or two years old or three years old who have not had deep human connection, you can do a brain scan on their brain and you would actually see in their brains little black holes, which are spaces where the neurons do not form. It is scientifically proven that if Babies do not have this attachment bond created. Then essentially what happens is the neurological systems don't grow and the physical hardwiring of the brain is incomplete. I think you know where I'm going with this message in today's current generation and current mental health crisis. There is a psychological disconnect. There is a neurological hardwiring that never gets completed. A systemizing, so to speak, internally And children who experience this, according to our latest research, have smaller brains, they have behavior deficits, and they are children that ultimately grow up and even have performance issues as it relates to life and reality. Because the kids are trying to meet the demands of reality without the circuitry needed to do so. God provides circuitry, and that circuitry is needed to survive, to thrive, to be who God has called us to be. And the reason it happens, again, is because these babies are forsaken. These babies have a deep sense of connection that is lost or missing in their life. And no doubt does it touch their body. No doubt does it shape their neurology. But it also affects their spirits. It affects their souls, now, I've got a feeling this morning that those that are streaming live and us in this room, we may not have marks in our brains if we met for CT scans this afternoon. But I think many of us, and I would say probably a majority of us, do have those marks in our souls. Our brains might not show holes, but our souls will show, show these holes. Places where we feel in life we've been neglected. Places where we feel maybe we were physically cared for. Maybe our parents financially provided for us. Maybe our parents did all of these things financially, but we've been forsaken. And the result is that there's a hole in our soul. Maybe even our parents were consistent or faithful for one season, but then went off awry, went off the rocker, so to speak. And in the midst of that, we have holes in our soul. It could manifest in all kinds of mental challenges, all kinds of emotional, mental realities. Maybe this happened when you were a child. Your parents got divorced, and the one thing you couldn't stop believing as a child, especially if you were in that late elementary to early middle school, your parents got divorced, and you could not stop thinking, why can't they just stay together? Why in the world does this have to happen? Why can't they just, st- why can't they just make it work? And then you begin to ask the question, is this my fault? Is this my fault? Is, is this my doing? And as a result, you couldn't understand how one of the people or both of the people who birthed you, who brought you into this world, could suddenly just evaporate. How could they disappear so quickly? And so in some sense, you have a spirit of rejection that entered your heart. A spirit, a wound that entered into the human psyche. This happens even in elementary school. I was just reading a recent study where psychologists talk about the importance of the third grade in shaping our identity more than any other time in a human being's life. Third grade's it. Third grade is the moment that that, that determines the identity of a young child. What's actually going on internally in that child? The third grade. I mean, think about that. What happened to you in the third grade? What happened to you in middle school or what happened to you in high school or your young adult years? Hey, let me ask you this question. You ever been at one of those out-of-town events where it always happens out of town, where your friendship your friendship group that you went uh, to the out of town trip was one thing, but then it shifts right in the middle of the out of town trip. You ever had this happen? And the friend dynamics change on the trip right there in front of you. And all of a sudden, these people that weren't too connected get connected and you feel this sense of rejection, okay? You feel this sense of, how in the world did this shift on me? And now I feel wounded. Maybe this happened with your your sexuality. You've given yourself to someone. And when I say given yourself to someone, I mean you've given them your whole self. You gave them your body, right? You gave yourself to that person. And you thought, surely if I give them everything, that's what they told me in high school, if I'll give them everything and don't hold back anything from them, then no way in God's earth will they reject me. But they what? They just move on. And then what happens is that rejection makes its way into the human heart what happens is that that sense of woundedness seeps down into the human psyche what it means to be forsaken we live in a culture today church where people are regularly and repeatedly abandoning relationships even over political ideas we live in a culture in the West right now where people are repeatedly, and it's happening worse in the new Gen Zers, and repeatedly, and repeatedly and regularly, abandoning relationships and leaving people deeply wounded. We say, Pastor Craig, well, what does God think about this? What does He want to say to this? How does He speak to these issues? Well, the text that I had Thomas read, we have Jesus on the cross. We have him on the cross using this extraordinary phrase. Probably, perhaps, more has been written theologically about this phrase than any of the seven statements Jesus makes from the cross. And he says, my God, next slide, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? Why have you forsaken me? forsaken me. Now, this is an incredible claim because I want you to think for a moment. Everything you've ever experienced, everything you've ever had in terms of abandonment, every abandoned relationship you've ever had this side of eternity, every wound, the Son of God understands that because on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want you to see the distance of the shift that has happened between the relationship and the son in this passage. It is extraordinary. It is remarkable. Think about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. How did it start? It started with his baptism where, what does the father say? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. What happens in the mountain transfiguration, right? Mount Tabor, Peter, James, and John, God speaks from heaven and envelops them on the mountain. What does he say? This is my son, listen to him. And at the end of Jesus's ministry, you got Christ crying out, where are you? father? What has happened in his life? What shift has taken place? What does it mean to follow in the footsteps of Jesus into these feelings of forsakenness? Let's talk for a few moments. Jesus is crying out to his father saying, I feel forsaken. I feel abandoned. I want you to think about Jesus's journey to the cross. It was one church of feeling forsaken in almost every facet a human can understand. Let me just take a quick survey. His family thought he was out of his mind. They forsook him. His brothers literally thought he was off his rockers. They forsook him. His mother's the only one that makes it. His disciples, his closest friends, the ones he's given his life for, the ones that he has trained and led and and touched and met their needs for three and a half years. They forsook him even after they promised to stay with him. Even after the night before when he gave them an institute of the Lord's Supper, they still leave him. Peter, y'all, big mouth Peter, right? Big mouth Peter makes a promise. He sees a teenage girl 45 minutes later and he's like, I'm out, peace. You know, a teenage girl. He's gone he forsakes the lord of glory he turns his back on jesus the religious leaders what do they do they forsake him it's an extraordinary experience of forsakenness jesus had while on his way to the cross he's not even to the cross yet he's not even there yet And there's this overwhelming sense of rejection and forsakenness. Now here is Christ on the cross. And what is he preaching to us? He's not just preaching the forgiveness of sins, though he is preaching that. He's not just preaching deliverance uh, from our sins, but he's also preaching a deep understanding of what it means to be forsaken because of your sin. Because of your sin. Christ understands the wounds. He understands the issues of our hearts and he understands the pain of forsakenness because he himself was forsaken. Now, when Jesus is on the cross, what is he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic promise, and it's a messianic prophecy. I think it's pretty amazing. Reason it's, to me it's so amazing because it's it written hundreds of years. We're talking about like 700 plus years before Jesus actually would give up his life. And, 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 and every single thing that David penned in this psalm speaks to the specificity of what would happen to the Son of God there in 33 AD. So oftentimes when you talk about apologetics, I love apologetics. It, it, when people talk about the supernatural engineering of God's word, this is one of the number one passages they go to because there's no way David could have known with specificity what was to happen to Jesus. And yet he paints a perfect picture of what happens at Golgotha. How could have David known this would happen? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, David said. Why are you so far from saving me? Notice, why are you so far from my cries of anguish, Father? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you don't answer. I cry out to you by night, but I find no rest. John to verse 16, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All of my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garment, David said. Here was David prophesying about the cross and here is now Jesus feeling the full weight of the agony and the forsakenness he never dreamed and imagined he would have to experience. And as a result of this, church, what happens? Christ on the cross crying out to his father results in darkness over the land. Everybody say darkness. Darkness, that's what happens. Darkness, next slide. There is a darkness that envelops all of Jerusalem. Now this is the response ultimately to Christ on the cross. The the response of the earth and the universe to the cry of Jesus is darkness. Darkness invades the planet. It surrounds Jerusalem. Why have you forsaken me? Darkness. What is happening here? What can we see in the Gospels? What can we learn from the text? Well, in some sense, what the writers of the Gospels are trying to show you is the typologies being fulfilled from Exodus. So I just want to connect a few of them just for a few moments. You remember the Passover lamb and the institution of the Passover. In the last plague, what we call the... Yeah, don't don't show that yet. Yeah, The the last plague um, that we find is... I'm sorry. Um, the last plague that we see take place is the death of the firstborn, where they send out an angel, a death angel, over all of Israel. And God has called the people of God in the midst of this to ultimately eat the whole lamb, put the blood over the doorpost, and in putting the blood over the doorpost, then the death angel would not stop there and kill ultimately the Pharaoh's firstborn son and all the firstborn son in order to bring deliverance to all of the people of God. So you gotta think just for a moment. The Passover lamb on the weekend of Jesus' death is about to be slain in the temple at 3 p.m. Guess when Jesus dies? He dies at 3 p.m. Jesus is the Passover lamb, okay? This is Yom Kippur. He gives his life so that what? We may be delivered from sin, Now, a part of the drama of that was the darkness over the land, just like we see in the book of Exodus, and we see it here. And we also see several other typologies. We also see the horror as the firstborn son, but this is not the firstborn son of Pharaoh. This is the firstborn son of the father is actually slain so that we may be delivered, is actually killed so that we may be set free. But it's also deeply prophetic when you go through the whole Testament because you go through passages like Zephaniah and you go through passages like the book of Joel and you go through passages like um, Zechariah and even Habakkuk and again and again you see that judgment and darkness are always tied together. And here is God the Father saying all the judgment, all the condemnation, all the wrath, all the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve is being laid upon Christ on our behalf. And watch this, it is in the darkness and in this cry that the first thing we see is the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Next slide. We recognize how serious sin really is. Now we know in human relationships, if someone breaks a covenant, if someone violates your trust, if someone does something that hurts you, right? You can't just snap your fingers and make it go away, right? If somebody does something wrong to you, you can't just snap your fingers. If you do, You are naive and you will get hurt over and over and over again. How many parents have told this to teenagers, right? Okay, somebody does you wrong, they don't snap their finger and everything's okay. There's a cost to forgiveness, right? So real forgiveness is costly. What does it cost? It requires hard conversations. It requires repentance. It requires looking at each other in the eye. It requires forgiveness being given. And this is what God is showing us on the cross. John Stott, he says this, John Stott makes the statement. He says, the reason why many people give the wrong answers to questions about the cross and even ask the wrong questions is that they have carefully considered neither the seriousness of their sin nor have they ever considered the majesty of God. Notice that. People say, what's the big deal with the cross? I've heard it all my life. Why can't God just play armchair quarterback and say you're forgiven? Why did he set this up where he has to himself pay for the penalty of our sin? Why can't he just forgive? Well, listen, if you can't even do that in your human relationships, if you can't just sit back and say, oh, you're forgiven, no need to have a conversation. If you, a human, cannot do that, how do we expect the creator of the whole universe to do that with the total distortion and sin that has totally wreaked havoc on the planet? So Stott, what does he do? He goes on, and this is what John Stott says. He says, to draw an analogy between our forgiveness of each other, next slide, and God's forgiveness of us is very superficial. We are not God, but private individuals. Notice this, private individuals. While he is the maker of heaven and earth, creator of the very laws we break, our sins are not purely personal injuries, but our sins are a willful rebellion against him. So think about this. So because of sin, our relationship with God is broken and and brokenness in our life because of ultimately Adam's relationship and his brokenness and his rebellion and man saying to God, we want to live for ourselves and not live for you and our own rebellion in light of God's own care for our lives. So what happens? It results in this profound separation. You get this deep sense of forsakenness. So something has to happen to close the gap. Something has to build the bridge, so to speak. Something has to happen to mediate the restoration of our relationship to our Father. So I want to share something with you just real quick. Because of our sin, let me say this, four things are true. Because of our sin, number one, you've got to see, we deserve to die as the penalty of sin. Not only do we deserve to die as the penalty of sin, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. We deserve, deserve to take on the wrath of God because of our sin. Number three, we are also separated from God by our sins. So we have eternal separation because of our sin. And number four, we are in bondage to sin and we are in bondage to the kingdom of Satan. So leave that up there a moment. Notice we have penalty, wrath, separation, and bondage. Penalty, wrath, separation, and bondage. And this, my friends, is the state we find ourselves in naturally apart from Christ. This is where humans find themselves. Yet, yet, and this is a big yet, These four needs are met by Jesus on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These very fundamental, spiritual, adoptive needs are met by the son of God in this moment of forsakenness. You say, Craig, how are they met? They're met in the following four ways. Notice the first way that they're met. Jesus died as a sacrifice for us ultimately to pay the penalty of death that we deserve for our sin, Hebrews 9, 26. Secondly, Jesus died as a propitiation for our sins to remove us from the wrath of God. 1 John 4:10. Number 3, Jesus experienced death and separation from God to overcome our separation from God. He provided reconciliation for us, we the people of God now to be brought back into fellowship with God. And then fourthly, Jesus and through his death, we experience redemption ourselves from bondage to sin and Satan so that we live now in newness of life in the spirit in the kingdom of the beloved Son, now that is quite a bit of theology for fifteen minutes into a sermon. I get it, but I want you to see the point. and my theologies, I'm going to hit a pause for the rest of the time and now speak to your soul. I want you to see the point I'm making. the penalty of sin, church the horror of sin, the distance it creates between us and God. And here is Jesus on the cross choosing to be forsaken so that you and I never have to be forsaken. So that you and I never have to deal with forsaken mental challenges, forsaken emotional needs. This is Jesus enduring the cross so that you and I could be made Which leads us to the second thing we see in the cross, and that is not only the seriousness of our sin, but secondly, next slide, the staggering nature of God's love. The staggering nature of the love of God. Now, some modern theologians, they they don't like substitutionary atonement theories meaning they don't like talking about the reality or viewing it as that Jesus took on the wrath of God, the wrath that was due us. Jesus took his, a sponge in his body so that you and I now receive forgiveness because they say this is divine child abuse. Okay, Even modern theologians, they say this is divine child abuse, the father abusing the son on the, on, for the sake of other sons and daughters. Like, How could a heavenly father punish his son? But can I just propose to you that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening at the cross? You say, what is happening here? God is not punishing Jesus because he's angry. Are you hearing me? He's not punishing Jesus because he's angry. This is a covenant of grace for our redemption. Listen to me. The cross is a full-scale Trinitarian rescue effort into the human race. You can't look at this as the father being pit against the son or the son being get pit against the father. This is not like the father and the son are on different terms and so the son's trying to step in and take the abuse of the, the drunk stepfather uh, so that the s- drunk stepfather doesn't hurt the other children inside. That no, 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 this is not what's taking place at us. Christ wants to come. He's not coming because he has to come. He said, I laid down my life on my own court. No one takes my life from me. Don't you get this wrong? I'm laying my life down. Down. Listen to me. All next slide, three persons were present in the atonement. Hebrews 9:14 says, Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to the Father. All three are present in the crucifixion. All three persons of the Godhead are very present, rescuing humanity from our brokenness. Fleming Rutledge fabulous theologian. She puts it this way. She said, with all due respect to the religions of the world, there's no other story like the Christian story. The God who thunders, the God who persecutes and condemns, the God who wreaks vengeance. Yes, we know this God from the caricatures. We know this God from the old paintings. We know this God from hearing continual references to the quote, Old Testament God. Notice what she says. But this is not who God is. The Old Testament God is the one who's come down from his throne on high into the world of sinful human flesh and of his own free will and decision has come under his own judgment in order to deliver us from everlasting condemnation and bring us into eternal life. The Old Testament God has not required human sacrifice in Jesus. He has himself become the human sacrifice. He has not turned us over and forsaken us. He was himself turned over and forsaken for us. Do you hear that, church? Do you hear that? Love so powerful, a love so willing to give, a love so willing to sacrifice itself, and that sort of love will leave a mark on your soul, will it not? When you really understand that kind of love, it will change your life. That sort of love will change us forever. I know it changed me February 10th, 2002, and I've never been the same. One, One reality and understanding of that love in the soul transforms all of the eternal destination of that soul. So on the cross, he's pointing out the seriousness of sin, but on the other side, he's pointing out the staggering nature of the love of God. You know what the cross is saying to you, church? Can I put it in vernacular terms, modern day terms for us? You know what Jesus is preaching to you on the cross? God wants you back. God wants you back. God wants you back. God wants you for himself. God wants you in tight relationship with him. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. God wants you back. God is preaching from the cross. I want you back. I desire you. I love you. I want you in relationship with me. And listen, church, even a brief tour of the scriptures shows us the extent that Jesus had to go through to restore us to the Father. It's incredible. I mean, just, I'm not, I'm not gonna hit any of them, but just look at what he had to go through to restore us. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. What a verse! By his wounds we are healed. What a verse! By what he went through we are healed. What a verse! We are healed by his wounds. What a verse! We are healed by his suffering. What a verse. We are not healed by his strength. What a verse. Have you ever thought about that before? You aren't healed by the strength of God. You're healed by the wounds of God. You're healed by what Jesus endured. You're healed by the forsakenness he felt. He went through the forsaken existential dread. So you don't have to live this side of eternity or that side of eternity with any sense of forsakenness ever again. You want to talk about stretched thin? He was forsaken that you and I will never be forsaken. Never be separate. Never be separated from God's holy presence. Forever in right security and relationship with him first or john chapter 1 verse 29 the next day jesus what he did he saw john saw jesus coming towards him and said look the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world mark 10 and 45 for even the son of man did not come to be served but to what give his life and serve as a ransom for many hebrews nine twenty eight. so christ was sacrificed once everybody say once only one time to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. Those who are waiting on him. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24, I'm not gonna hit many, but look at these. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. First Peter 3 and 18, for Christ also suffered once for sin the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God he was put to death in the body but he was made alive in the spirit Second Corinthians 5 21 God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God Galatians 3 and 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. What length will God go to get you back? Do you want to you know what the world around us is asking us? Does God care? What kind of length would he go to to get us back? Listen, that far. And every conceivable view of forgiveness is available to you today because Christ has given his life once and for all. Every conceivable area of forgiveness. He was forsaken that you and I would never be forsaken. So here's the cross. Jesus in darkness lifting up. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, I want to show you something that makes me want to sprint, to be quite honest. In Mark's gospel, there is a symbiotic relationship happening between the temple and what's happening in Jesus' body. I want you to see how they happen simultaneously. In Mark chapter 15, verse 33, something happens at the cross that causes something to happen at the temple. They're both in Jerusalem that day, but they happened at the same time. Let's read it again. Verse 33, at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And Jesus then cried out, why are you forsaking me? So what is this happening? Why is this happening? Jesus' cry triggers something over in the temple. Now, if you're a Jew, you understand the centrality of the temple, don't you? The temple is literally the center of Jewish life. You've got to see the temple like the navel. The temple is the belly button of earth. Why? For the Jews, it was the most holy place. It was the place where the umbilical cord of heaven touched earth. All of the mother, we're speaking of God here, and her nutrients and blood were passed to Israel through the umbilical cord through the temple. The temple is the locale of God's presence. It's the place where the most important building on the planet in the most important city on the planet and the most important room in that most important building is called the holy of holies, the holy place, the holiest of place. And in the moment that Jesus dies. The Bible says the veil that separated God from the rest of the world was torn from top to bottom. Did you know it wasn't torn from bottom to top? Because salvation isn't starting with mankind making its way to heaven. It's starting with God making its way to earth. And when God tore, when when Jesus cried out and died, something happened instantly in the temple where what where God's presence had been behind the Holy of Holies, the veil was torn. And Jesus' cry, has triggered the rending of the curtain. Can I give you three things that are happening here? First of all, here's what happens. In Jewish practice, when a father lost his son, he would take his clothes and he would tear his clothes from the top of his neck down to the bottom of his blouse. So when a father lost his son, three things are happening here. The father would rip his clothes from top to bottom because he was grieving. Now, you know what's happening at the death of Jesus? We're seeing a grieving moment for the father, are we not? We're seeing the father grieve over his beloved son. We're seeing the father grieve over the reality that his son has to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And so the veil is being torn from top to bottom. But it's also, secondly, the release of the spirit. Somebody say the spirit. Now this is good news, church. You know what's happening right there when Jesus dies, when the veil is torn from top to bottom? Jesus, through all the typology, is saying, I'm the true Israel, right? He said, I'm the true Adam, right? I'm the true what? I'm the true priest. I'm the true sacrifice. Jesus is saying, I'm the true everything. Now, what do you do, church, when the curtain is ripped open and God's not there? God is released into the world. Let me tell you what you do. Next slide. You realize, you realize that God has relocated his presence from a place into a people. That's us. At the death of Jesus the locale of the presence of God was released from the Holy of Holies and released to a new person. That was us. We become the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now a new and better way is open to us. Come on, church. Now Jesus at his death said, the sacrificial system is over. I am the true and better sacrifice. I am the true and better priest. And I know you've been offering sacrifices for thousands of years, but there is no more need to offer sacrifices. There is no more need to keep God." God's presence behind a veil. I have now been released into the world. The spirit of God has been released into all human hearts with the death of Jesus Christ. The cry from the Nazarene is ripping open the curtain and sending the spirit into our hearts. Now we often talk, oh listen, we always talk about resurrection. I get it, I get it, but theologically we got an issue here. Guess where the spirit is released into all the world? Not at the resurrection. It's released the moment Jesus pays the penalty for sin the veil is ripped from top to bottom and the spirit is released god is released but i want you to see the third thing it means it also shows us the futility of religion now you think what do you mean the reason i spent so much time talking about the the atonement is because you have to realize something you have to realize that the atonement is not just a theology it is what has happened to your inner being If you are in Jesus, it means, watch this, watch this. It means that if you are in Jesus in spite of your sin and in spite of what you've done, you are now so holy right now. I'm not talking about when you go do good this week. I'm talking about right now. You are now so holy that the high priest who was terrified to go into that holy of holies once a year, you went in on your own strength, you died. You died in the presence of God. That same place is now in your heart. that holy of holies is right there in your seat. You are so cleansed by the blood of Jesus that you don't get once a year access. You get 24-7 constant access to God by the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. Where is God, Craig? Christ in you, the hope of glory. But as I said, there's a third thing happening here. It was ripped from top to bottom, and Jesus dies, guess what? At 33 AD. Now, you study church history. Guess when when Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed? Do you know when it was? 70 AD. You know what that means? For 40 years, the religious leaders sewed the curtain up and pretended that what happened that day didn't happen, and they kept doing sacrifices and tried to shove God back in the box, but he wasn't there anymore. Folks, the human proneness, the human proneness to constantly still think I must do something for God to be holy. The hu- these people have been waiting for thousands of years to access God's presence and the moment Jesus dies they have it and they spend 40 more years sewing up the curtain saying I cannot accept what Jesus has done for me I must, the the human proneness to constantly go to works righteousness the human proneness to always think that we have to do something in order to become the righteousness of God, the human proneness and human proclivity and and depraved heart to always think i got to do something for God in order to become the dwelling place in which God lives by the Spirit. They failed to see what God was doing in their midst and when Jesus died on the cross the Spirit of God and the old sacrificial system is done and the Spirit of God is released into all human hearts who will trust in that sacrifice and God in that moment creates a new humanity a new cosmos, a new reality, a new way of relating to God in our lives. Now, the problem with this is you know all this, don't you? Honestly. Listen, church, you honestly do. None of the stuff I've told you is new. None of the stuff you heard is probably new to you. You get it, but we get it in our minds And sometimes it even touches our emotions. But do we get it in our spirits? Do we get it in our souls? Do we get it in our operating systems? Most of us have experienced such deep levels of forsakenness in our life that even if you glue theology and you paste with a glue stick doctrine on top of it, you don't touch the brokenness of your heart. So you can glue theology all around it. You can wrap it in with beautiful doctrine. You change your worldview, but you don't change your spirit. So you still live with a forsaken spirit, an orphan spirit. And what I think Jesus is preaching to us from the cross is that because he was forsaken, you and I don't have to live, next slide, with a forsaken spirit. We don't have to live with a forsaken spirit. God wants to heal your forsaken spirit. Um, This is what Jack Frost, I know, true author, is really his name, this is what Jack Frost says in his book on slavery to sonship. He says, when you possess an orphan heart, you never truly feel at home anywhere. You're afraid of trust. You're afraid of rejection. You're afraid to open your heart to receive love. And unless you're able to receive love, you cannot unconditionally express love, even to your own family, even to your own spouse. You can be born again. You can go to church every week. You can tithe. You can avidly study the Bible. You can do all the right Christian stuff, and you can still have an orphan heart. You can have an orphan heart. Oh man, I was praying with my face in the carpet last night. People would be delivered this morning from an orphan soul. An orphan heart. He, he goes on, he says, being saved does not adequately mean automatically mean being feeling secure, loved, and accepted as a son or daughter of God. They're two different things. The new birth in Christ makes you a son or daughter of God, but that does not mean that you will enter automatically into the full personal experience of a love relationship with Him as Father. doesn't mean that. So Jesus didn't die on the cross just so we can believe that Jesus died on the cross. He's died on the cross to heal our forsaken spirit. He's died on the cross to touch your orphan heart. He's died on the cross to adopt you as a fully loved son or daughter. And the Holy Spirit has been sent into the world to heal the orphan wound. That's good news for 36 million Americans who right now live without a father in their life. 36 million Americans with a father wound that he came to restore your orphan heart. Jesus is dying on the cross to fundamentally go to the depth of your soul and say, I want you and heal you. Now there's a concept from a book I read this summer called Spiritual Bypassing. Fascinating book, and, and I'm, almost, I'm almost finished. But in this book, in spiritual bypassing, you get what bypasses are, right? In poor-planned cities like Atlanta, <clears throat> you drive south, and you say, I want to miss that mess, and you go 285. But the problem is 285 needs another bypass, doesn't it? We need to add a bypass for 285, and then we'll add another bypass off of the bypass for 280, right? And you say, I'm going to skip all that stuff. So this author presents to us that with the resurgence of spiritual life, or spirituality in America, he says spiritual bypassing is taking us by storm believers by storm. I want you to listen to one psychologist noting on spiritual bypassing. This is what he said. He said, spiritual bypassing, a term first coined by psychologist John Wellwood in 1984 is the use of spiritual practices and beliefs to avoid dealing with our painful feelings, unresolved wounds, and developmental needs. Spiritual bypassing distances us not only from our own pain and difficult personal issues, but also from our own authentic spirituality. It stands or strands us, leaves us stranded in a metaphysical limbo, a zone where we have exaggerated gentleness, nice and superficiality, but its frequently disconnected nature keeps it adrift and clinging to the life jacket of its own self-conferred spiritual credentials. As such, it maroons us from embodying our own, he says, full humanity. Now, in my thinking, you can leave that up there. In my thinking through this, I started thinking which, which faith traditions are most likely to spiritually bypass a wounded spirit. I've got two of them. The first faith tradition that I think is prone to spiritual bypassing are those specifically who value theology and God's word. This is a faith tradition that will be prone to spiritual bypassing. Why? Because we value truth and doctrine. So we think another book will fix it all. Well, I need to read. I need to study more. It'll fix it all. That's the first tradition. Guess what the second tradition is that's prone to spiritual bypassing? Charismatics. Pentecostals. Why? You get filled with the Holy Spirit and it'll take care of everything, right? If you're dealing with forsaken spirit, you need to get prayed over one more more time. Right? You you need to get zapped one more time. The Holy Spirit needs to zap you one more time, right? And you'll be good. So, the two traditions that are most prone to spiritual bypassing are those who value theology and are charismatics. We, Dwelling Place, are a holistic Christian church that seeks to what? Lead people to biblical maturity, what? For the multiplication of believers, leaders, and churches. And what? We believe in the gifts of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit. Our church is at the epicenter of the proneness to spiritual bypassing. We are at the center of faith traditions of people that use spiritual practices to bypass the wounds of their soul. And people think, well, I already know that, so my spirit is healed. Just because you know that does not mean your spirit is healed. Or I had an encounter with God, so I'm a different person. But it's just not always quite true. We can still have inside of us deep, deep, deep wounds. Jesus died, church, so that our fundamental spirits may be saved and renewed with a spirit of adoption. And Jesus says to us now, listen, I've been forsaken so that you never have to be forsaken. Jesus says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says to you, this morning. Your parents may abandon you, but I'll never abandon you. Jesus may say to you, your dad may have left you and left your mom and you to high and dry, but I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says to you this morning, listen, your, co- your, your co-workers or your employer may abandon you or turn their back on you, but I will never turn my back on you. Your lovers, Jesus says to us, your lover may turn his back on you. Your lover may abandon you and reject you, but I will never abandon you and I will never reject you. Because he knows the pain and horror of what this feels like existentially if we trust him experientially we will never feel abandoned in the same way so he pledges the promise of his presence to us i think of jesus sending out the disciples what did he say lo i'll be with you to the end of the age i think of what jesus said in hebrews i will never leave you nor forsake you i think of what jesus has said in hebrews he's the same yesterday today and forever listen to me listen to me why is life so hard then craig why is it so hard next slide Look, favor from God does not always equal favors from God. Favor from God does not always equal favors from God. You know our favorite verse, Romans chapter 8? We love it. We love, 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 love. We've memorized it, Romans 8, the security. You know what it says in the middle of Romans 8? It says all day long we Christians are to be considered as sheep that are in line to be slaughtered. Now, how did you miss that when you memorized the passage? Paul says, you want to know what the Christian life is like? Oh, no big deal. Let me paint a picture for you. You ever seen sheep lined up to be slaughtered? That's the Christian life. But take heart, because nothing shall separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus. He's not saying you won't go through trying times. He's saying you will never be abandoned in the middle of your struggles because Christ goes with you. And the cross happened. Now we are the new temple. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry. Everybody say cry. By him we what? What do we do? What do we do? It does not say, and by him we theologically confess the doctrine of the spirit of adoption. No, we cry. This is not here, this is here. We cry. We don't confess, we cry. If you want the healing to take place, you must Cry If you want the forsaken spirit to be done away with, you must cry. You not must confess, you might not believe, you must cry. We cry out to God, Abba, Father. We build our relationship back one-on-one with the Father. This is the deepest part of the human spirit connecting to your heavenly Father. This is the primal hunger of America's heart. The primal hunger of America's heart is the desire to be adopted. People want to know that they are. Are wanted. People want to feel that they are desired. People want to, you want to know what really, I'm not trying to make all complexity of mental health issues and barrel it all down to just one single deal. But I'm going to tell you the majority of issues that we deal with mentally, psychologically, and emotionally comes from orphaned souls. It comes from orphaned hearts. And uh, the Bible says he sends his spirit into a heart that cries out, Abba, Father. He goes on in Galatians. Look what he says, verse uh, six and seven of chapter four. Because you were his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, you're God's child. And since you're his child, he's made you also an heir. We have been adopted by God. And the cross is saying, God's saying, I want you back. I want you back. I want you back. I wanna show you a quick video someone sent me several months ago. I think gets at the absolute heart of adoption. I think nothing. It communicates so clearly to know that you are actually wanted by God. Watch this quick video. Make sure you turn it up for me. All right, well, there's one more gift. We have one more it's gift. It's not for Grammy, but it's, yeah, it's another gift. Why don't you carefully open it up? There we go. I want you to read it. I'm going to be adopted. We love you so much. We'll always be with you. I love you so much. I love you. We love you. We will always be your parents. Is that what you see when you see the Christian life? Do you see the father on one side and the son on the other and lean into you and say, open the gift. We want you. We want you. We long for you. You you, you mean I'm going to be adopted? Yes. And we will always be your parents. Is that what you see when you think of the Christian life? When you think of Christianity, you see the Father and the Son saying, this is the heart of God, we want you. So listen, next slide. When we have an orphan spirit, folks, when we have an orphan spirit, we actually end up partnering with that spirit to focus on and create a reality where we're not loved, where relationships don't last, and the pain of our unmet needs continues to destroy our life. And the only way you break the cycle is to have the spirit of sonship cry out in your spirit. Next slide. The, you know what the orphan spirit does? It tortures you by fear and insecurity. But f- sons and daughters are fully secure in who we belong to. You want to know why self-promotion so big in America? You know what self-promotion is? The cry of an orphaned heart. You have to self-promote when your daddy hasn't approved you. When you don't know you're loved... You have to make a name for yourself. Orphan spirits are crying out to be recognized. But listen, we are now sons and daughters of God. And to know you were wanted because of His grace, that would change your life, won't it? Will that change your life? Some of you right now, you're dealing with mental health issues because you have an orphan heart. Patterns, repressed emotions. And I believe this morning God wants to deliver you from a forsaken spirit. He wants to bring healing in your heart. But see, we have so many coping mechanisms and so much spiritual bypassing that we don't have to sit down long enough. It's so hard to get to the place of the orphan soul because you have, you've coped with it for so long that you've got so many layers of defense that are guarding it. And you have to actually sit long enough to allow the surgeon to start peeling away the layers to be honest with yourself. So what I did is I adopted something from the back of the book. <clears throat> and um, Jesse, would you come? You're playing keys today. I want Jesse to come. I want you just to ask yourself, this is how we're going to close today. I am going to show you some charts. And what I've done is I've just pulled from this book some charts. But I want you to ask yourself and be just honest with yourself, how do you discover what spirit you have? because that's what people are asking. Do I have an orphan spirit or do I have a son spirit? Well, in order for you to get there, I knew it would be really hard for me just to ask that question. So I thought what I would do is I'm going to show you a couple slides, and I want you to be honest with yourself of where you're at. What do you most identify with? So in the middle, you're going to see God, and you're going to see the value we're going to talk about, and then on the left, we're going to see orphan hearts, and on the right, sons and daughters. So your image of God right now, how do you view God? Do you say God is my master, or do you view God as my loving father? And, and you folks taking pictures, I'll send these all to you. This, this content will not save you. No, I'm just kidding. I'll send these. I'll post these. I'll do whatever. The image of God. The second one is dependency. Are you independent, self-reliant? Always depending on yourself. Are you interdependent and you acknowledge your need? Sons, acknowledge your need. I know I have a need. I'm in desperate need. Of grace, mercy, God's forgiveness, love, help. What about your theology? Do you live by the love of the law? Or do you live by the law of love? Not, not what do you believe. See, it's really easy right now to go back into what you believe. Which column? I'm not asking which one you believe. I'm asking which one do you experience. Security. Are you insecure? you have a lack of peace in your life? Or are you at total rest and peace? Knowing you're certain, secure, and safe in the loving arms of your Father. When you think of your approval, are you striving for praise? Approval from the others? Seeking out the approval from man? Or do you feel totally accepted in God's love? All the acceptance you ever need is seeing at the right hand of God. All the approval you ever need is already seated right now at the right hand of God. Next one, serving. Do you serve for personal achievement to impress God and others? Is it always about trying to get others to recognize how you've served? Or do you have a gratitude and overflow of love? Such an opportunity to serve Christ in His kingdom because of a gratitude. How He's adopted me. When your disciplines, are your spiritual disciplines about duty and earning favor? It's about duty, daily duty, daily discipline. Or is it pleasure and delight to spend time with the Lord? Is it a pleasure and delight to honor the Lord with the first fruits of your time, your tithing, your giving? What about purity? You must be holy to be accepted. And there's, of course, shame and guilt cycles when you fail. And you live in shame and guilt cycles for years. Orphan heart. Or do you, do you want to be holy and you don't want to sin because you don't want to hinder your intimacy with the Holy Spirit? You don't want to affect the intimacy and the fellowship you have with God. What about your identity? Do you have self-rejection from constant comparison? Comparison's the thief of joy, thief of all true contentment. You're always comparis- comparing yourself and there's self-hatred because of that. Or are you loved and affirmed by God? What about your comfort? Do you seek counterfeit addictions, counterfeit affections? Is it all about escapism and busyness and more? religious pluralism or religious activity and more hyper religious activities in order to silence the orphan desire or the orphan cry or do you have and seek times of quietness and solitude to rest in the father's presence to rest in his love to rest in the fact that you are a child of god and what matters most is that you are a child not what you do not what you do i've got two more for you next one your relationships are they all about competition and rivalry jealousy towards others and it's all about your success and the position you hold among others, or is your relationships about your humility and your unity as you value others and you're able to rejoice in their blessings. Somebody's blessed and you rejoice in. It. I mean, it's as natural as possible. Listen, I'm not asking what you believe. I'm asking when you see your friend rejoice or get get successful, what happens instantly in your heart? It'll tell you what spirit you have. Is it an orphan spirit or is it a son or daughter? What about your faults? Is it all about accusation and exposure in order to make yourself look good by making others look bad? Or is it to seek show grace and restore others in a, in a spirit of gentleness? Man, I want them to be restored. What about authority? You see authority as a source of pain. You're very distrustful towards them. A lack of heart especially for their commitment, their sacrifice for you or, or are you respectful and honoring of your authority? You see them as a source of protection for God's call in your life. Why? Because you know a heavenly father protects you. So you have no problem spiritual leaders protecting you. Spiritual leaders having oversight in your life. What about admonition? Are you defensive and you must be right? You're easily hurt, easily offended, always offended. You're interpreting everybody's Facebook posts and Instagram posts towards you personally. Are you open and teachable, grateful for growth, grateful for formation? You're a resilient disciple. What about your expression? Are you guarded and conditional? And you're only gonna show love when certain conditions and based on their performance and how they've helped to serve you and meet your needs? Or are you open and patient and you lay your own life and agendas down in order to meet the needs of others? Last one, what about the presence of God? Do you see the presence of God as conditional and distant and that He's further from you or He's near to you? He's distant one day and He's close the next day? Or do you see His presence as His promised pledge that He'll never leave you nor forsake you as close and intimate more near than your very next breath. What about your condition? Is it about bondage or have you been set free? Liberty. What about your position? Are you a servant and slave? Do you always go back to slave mentality? Servant? Are you a son or daughter and friend and heir? I remember several years ago I was in a prayer meeting and i never forget. It was one of the most remarkable moments. I was in a prayer meeting and I remember the Lord. I was just crying. could not stop crying. Just tears flowing. And I remember Jesus speaking to me. He said, Greg, I just want to be your friend thought, oh my God, Lord, I've always thought you wanted to be my friend, but you just when I go deer hunt, you just want to be there in the stand with me and hang out. When I go wash cars this week, he just wants to kind of get up next to me and wash the car with me. He just you just wants to be a friend. Not, not a, you're, not, you're not a slave, he called you. Slaves don't know what their masters do. I call you friends, Jesus said. What about your vision? Is it striving and ambition? Is it recognition and achievement, or is it Experience and sharing God's kingdom and love and your future. You fight for what you can get, or do you realize you've inherited the whole kingdom and you release and enjoy what Jesus has given to you? Which of these defines your life? Not what do you believe, but what describes you? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, Be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.